I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. I'm excited to begin this book today, begin a new series, and it has a slightly different tone to it than uh, Ecclesiastes does. Uh, this is a book that has a lot of really good uh, verses in it. I mean, in one sense, I'm not allowed to say that because every verse is good. Every uh, word is, is breathed out by God in the scriptures. But uh, what I mean is that there are a lot of verses in Philippians that seem to make it onto Bible memorization plans because they are concise and just pack a lot within them and are just so very helpful. There's a lot of these verses, chapter 1, verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 4 has a lot of these verses, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Everyone's favorite out of context verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's a lot of good individual verses, but when we consider the book as a whole, I think it just uh, makes these specific verses just that much greater and that much better in their context As we look at Philippians, what we see in this book is a glimpse into a remarkable partnership between two parties. On the one hand, you have the Apostle Paul and with him, Timothy. And then on the other hand, you have the church that is at Philippi. It is a book that is filled with the theme of joy and humility with love for one another. And even as Paul instructs and gives correction, some rebuke along the way, this is clearly coming from a loving friend to this church, to a church that has been very kind to Paul and affectionate toward him and has stuck with him even through uh, Paul's suffering and Paul's difficulty, even when many others would abandon him. As he is writing this letter, he is imprisoned. So just consider that for a moment. And as we go through this book, don't lose sight of that. It's a book on love and and affection to one another and humility. And he's concerned for them and them for him. And he's writing all of this from prison. I think it makes the insight into this partnership between Paul and, and the Philippian church that much more remarkable. Uh, Harley already mentioned this word partnership. I want to read again verse 5 of chapter 1. He refers there to the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Speaking of the the, the Philippians, uh, partnership with Paul in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership... Uh, it's, act- it's one of those Greek words that I think everybody probably knows, or at least you've heard it said before. It's the word koinonia. I feel like every parachurch, every camp, every 
church or something has had a koinonia group or a koinonia building or something like that. And it's the word that is often translated as fellowship. It means to have a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. Association, communion, close relationship, fellowship, or partnership. Uh, this is the word used, a word used by Paul uh, to speak of um, communion, the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. In, in verse 5, uh, Paul goes, uh, clarifies that this fellowship they have, this particular partnership that they have, is a partnership that is in the gospel. Uh, this is a gospel fellowship, a gospel partnership. And we see this partnership in action throughout this book, uh, throughout this letter. Um, we, of course, here call ourselves Gospel of Grace Fellowship. And as we go through this letter, we're going to see more of what makes true gospel fellowship. I think this letter throughout will bring us much to be encouraged by and will also bring probably a lot of admonition uh, and um, rebuke at times, no doubt, uh, as we fall short. But this book also uh, is quick and constant to point us to the person of Jesus Christ, to rest in what Christ has done for sinners. And so today we're going to look at just the first two verses where we're going to see the parties of this fellowship. These first two verses offer, their, we, they're verses we might tend to kind of just fly over really quickly, but they offer um, quite a bit, a surprising amount of insight into the nature of this relationship, this partnership between Paul and the Philippian church. And so as we go through these verses, we're going to look at three characteristics of true gospel fellowship. Three characteristics of true gospel fellowship. And the first one is true gospel fellowship involves humility. True gospel fellowship involves humility. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a very uh, customary, kind of typical way, generally, for Paul to begin uh, a letter. We have the senders and the recipients both being identified here. And then there's this greeting in which he wishes a blessing upon the church. But again, this, just because it's, kind of customary doesn't mean that these are throwaway lines. There are some important things here if we slow down and take some time to consider them. So it begins, as I said, with Paul identifying the senders, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So typically in our letters, we will sign our names at the end, um, but in Paul's day, it was common to begin the letter by saying who it's from, which I think makes really a lot of sense. The Apostle Paul identifies himself right away, and he concludes with him his companion, Timothy. Now, it's best to view Timothy as a co-sender of this letter, one who would be in agreement with what is said here, um, but that really this is a letter that is written by Paul. Timothy is not so much a co-author, but he is a co-sender of it. 
Uh, as we go throughout this book, we'll see that the majority of it is written with first-person language. It's I and me, which is best to be understood as referring to Paul. And I think this is just sealed and driven home clearly in chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So, very clearly, Paul is the I, not Timothy. So, he is the, the author. Timothy, though, is a co-sender, one whom Paul would send soon to the Philippian church. As for Timothy, we know a little about this man. Uh, he was a young man at the time that he joined Paul in the ministry. He was a close companion of the Apostle Paul. He was faithful in the work of the gospel, served alongside Paul to the end. Uh, even after so many had abandoned Paul and, and fizzled out, um, Timothy was still going. And you think of the book of 2 Timothy, which is likely Paul, at least the last Paul letter that Paul wrote before his death that we have, at least, that is in the scriptures. And at the end of that letter, he is encouraging Timothy to carry on in the ministry and even to come to him soon. And he says, Luke alone is left with me. All these other, many other had, had just abandoned. Demas, he mentions, being in love with the world, has gone after the world. Others were maybe off serving other places. Uh, but Timothy was a faithful brother throughout Paul's days. We read some of Acts 16, which is really the, the planting and the forming of the Philippian church. We did not read at the very beginning of the chapter, but if we did, we would see there at the beginning of chapter 16 that Paul picked up Timothy in Galatia at the start of his second missionary journey. So he continued across kind of the top of the Mediterranean, if you can pick, pick, uh, picture your map in the back of your Bible. Uh, and it's his second missionary journey. And as he came to Galatia, he found Timothy, who was spoken highly of by the brothers, we are told. He was the uh, son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father. He'd been reared and raised in the faith. We see that in, in Paul's letters to Timothy. And he was well spoken of by the brothers. And he was taken by Paul. And they continued to move west. And then Paul had what is often referred to as his Macedonian vision. And so they ended up crossing the Aegean Sea into uh, out of what is modern-day Turkey into what is now known as Greece. And Paul began preaching the gospel in Europe for the first time. And the first place where we're told he went uh, and preached and had fruitful ministry was in Philippi. But Timothy doesn't show up much more as in the, in the, the verses that we read in the, in the book, in the uh, chap in chapter 16 of Acts, I was mainly focused on Paul and Silas. It was Paul and Silas who ended up in jail. But in this letter, when Paul says he was going to send Timothy to the Philippians soon, uh, this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 22. He says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And so the Philippian church was well acquainted with Timothy. They even knew how valuable he was. There seems to have been a close connection between Timothy and the Philippian church. And so we have this Apostle Paul, and we have Timothy, very well and highly spoken of. These are great men. And yet notice how Paul chooses to describe them. 
themselves. Paul and Timothy says, servants of Christ Jesus. That word for servants is really the word slaves. They are slaves of Christ. So just consider for a moment the humility of Paul to make this assertion here. This is how he identifies himself to this church, a slave of Christ. I've said this before, but English versions of the Bible are very loath to translate this word as slaves. Um, The ESV at least gives you a footnote there to let you know that's ordinarily how it would be translated. And at the beginning, before you even get to Genesis 1 in the intro, they'll tell you why, how they translate this word and why they do what they do with it. But nevertheless, I think the word slave has an intentionally hard-hitting force to it that gets a little bit lost when it's translated servant here. Servant is still a lowly thing for Paul to call himself, but slave just takes it that much further. It communicates a total devotion to Christ, a total belonging to someone else. It is a very lowly title, obviously. There's nothing pompous about referring to yourself as a slave of Christ. I think that he identifies himself as such here is, is all the more remarkable when we consider what word Paul does not use to identify himself here. A word that he commonly uses in the opening of his letters, namely, apostle. The word apostle. In the majority of Paul's epistles, he refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Right there in the opening. It's taken, typically, it is understood that he reminding, he's reminding people of his authority, of his unique position and authority as an apostle. That he has the right and even the duty before Christ to write this letter to them, to admonish, to correct, to rebuke, whatever the letter might be seeking to accomplish. That's not what Paul does here. And there's a few possible reasons for this. The first is that this letter is partly a thank you note to the church. The Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus to Paul and a gift with Epaphroditus to to minister to Paul as Paul was in prison. Probably, most likely, this was when Paul was in Rome. The first time he was imprisoned, as we find him as the book of Acts leaves him, uh, being under arrest in in Rome. And so Paul, in in part, this letter is is a thank you to this church. And so perhaps, you know, he's not... As a thank you note, it wouldn't be entirely appropriate to call himself an apostle. That's maybe partly it, but I think there's more to it. This is more than just his way of saying thank you. He does give them apostolic instruction and correction and encouragement. And so this is generally understood as evidence of the warm relationship existing between Paul and the saints in Philippi. Paul is indeed the Apostle Paul. He is a, the mighty Apostle Paul that we remember reading stories of growing up, if you grew up in the church, hearing great stories of Paul. This is the Paul we read of in Acts who 
Um, starts out persecuting the church, is miraculously converted, begins preaching Christ right away, uh, called by Christ to be an apostle, performing great miracles, preaching with tremendous amount of power and with uh, authority and being uh, accompanied with much grace and power from the Spirit and many people turning to the Lord Jesus Christ through his ministry. This is the Apostle Paul. And he was not afraid to assert his apostolic authority when it was called for. We see that in Galatians, where he comes out flying, giving correction and rebuke. We see it in 1 Corinthians. But he leaves that out here and describes himself instead as a slave of Christ. On its own, this might not seem like much. Just maybe reading too much into this. But given what the letter goes on to discuss and stress, I think it's fair to say that this is very intentional on Paul's part. The Philippian letter is filled with admonitions to humility. Philippi, we're told in the beginning of Acts 16, was a leading city in Macedonia. Sorry, that's in, in verse 12 of Acts 16. Philippi was actually considered a Roman colony, which meant that it was treated under law as if it was part of Italy. It had a very storied past that went all the way back to the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II of Macedon, and that's where they get, that's where Philippi got their name from, got its name from. This is also the location, if you remember your history, where Octavian and Anthony defeated Brutus and Cassius, the uh, assassins of Julius Caesar. A storied history to this place. And the reason this matters is that there was a certain pride in Philippi, an enjoyment of status and privilege and rank. And it seems that from this letter that the Philippian church was also in need of a little further humility, still perhaps tainted somewhat by this love of honor and titles and rank. We see this in a number of ways, and we'll draw attention to it as we go, but a couple examples in chapter 4, Paul is urging Judea and Syntyche to reconcile with one another for the church to help in this reconciliation between these two believers. And we have, of course, the very famous uh, admonition to humility in chapter 2. Think of chapter 2, which tells us of Christ's humiliation in the eternal Son of God taking to himself the form of man and coming to earth to die for sinners. It is a wonderful um, piece of, of doctrine and theology about the Lord Jesus, but it is more than just that. It is also uh, part of a, a section commending and, and admonishing the church to view others more significantly than yourselves. And so Paul is modeling here a humility that he's going to call the church toward. The church is a partner with Paul. There's mutual love and affection. He doesn't need to remind them of his authority. He is writing to thank them and he's writing to encourage humility. And we see Paul's own humility right out of the gate. 
And again, I think this is driven home when we consider the fact that Paul's writing this from prison. He's, he's writing this from jail. He's there because he is a slave of Christ. If the Apostle Paul understood himself to belong completely to Christ, to be Christ's slave, then how much more ought this to be the case for the Philippian church and for you and I as well? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you likewise belong totally and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the life of sanctification is reckoning ourselves as that which we truly are, namely slaves of Christ. Sanctification in many ways is just increasingly being conformed to this reality. There are various ways that Christians are described in the New Testament, various titles, various phrases used, including very glorious ones. Christians are sons of God. Christians are co-heirs with Christ. These are very triumphant titles. Saints, as we'll see in a moment. But there are also these very lowly ones as well. Servant, slave of Christ. Servant to one another. Paul was an apostle. Part of the foundation, Ephesians 2.20 tells us, of the New Testament church. And yet he did not lord his authority over anyone. So as we continue in these days, let us be diligent to likewise view ourselves first as slaves of Christ. By God's grace, with his help, putting others, seeking to put others ahead of our own desires and needs, living out our days in humility before God and one another. This is a key to healthy gospel fellowship. The second lesson, true gospel fellowship involves the local church. True gospel fellowship involves the local church. So after identifying the senders, Paul and Timothy, we have the recipients. To all the saints, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The location of the recipients is described here in two ways. We have a spiritual location, they're saints in Christ, and there's a physical location, they are located in the city of Philippi. Let's just begin by looking at their spiritual location, their spiritual position. He calls them saints in Christ Jesus. Saints is a common New Testament descriptor for believers. It comes from the word meaning holy. Uh, Christians are holy ones. Christians are those made holy by God's grace, clothed with the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, justified, declared righteous as a gift of God's grace by faith, called out of the world into the kingdom now of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so though still very much imperfect, though still needing to grow in our experience, in our lives, into greater holiness, positionally, Believers are holy before God, clothed in Christ's righteousness. This is why believers are called saints. 
And so this is who and what Christians are positionally before God, holy. And Paul links that here, being saints, with the fact that these believers are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is commonly used throughout the New Testament to refer to a believer's union with Christ. There is a spiritual union with the Lord Jesus that takes place when a sinner is saved. They are born again, and they are united to Christ Jesus. And it is out of this vital union with the Lord that all the blessings of salvation flow to the believer, to the saints. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Jesus taught in John, apart from me you can do nothing. There's a real union with Christ. Ephesians 1 is a very um, key text that describes and talks about this union, this repetition in him, in him. And so this is the spiritual location of all saints. This union with Christ, it's not something we see, it's not something we necessarily feel, but it is as much a reality as is the fact that you are sitting here now. This union with Christ is true of all believers, the world over, wherever they might be found. This is the universal body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's that word, fellowship. Every true believer is in this fellowship of the Son. But Paul is not simply writing here to every believer the world over. He specifies which saints in Christ he's addressing by giving their physical location. Course, to clarify, this letter has value and merit and use as God's breathed out scriptures for every Christian the world over. But as Paul wrote this letter from his jail, he is envisioning the Philippian church to whom he is writing. So he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So again, these are the saints living in the city of Philippi who are part of a local expression of the universal church. That is, he's writing to a body of gathered saints in the local church in Philippi. I've already said a little bit about uh, the city of Philippi. I won't add, go over that again. But notice Paul adds, with the overseers and deacons. He lists the two offices of the church. And so these are not just scattered Christians doing their own thing in the city of Philippi but he is writing the organized Christian church in Philippi. The word overseer, that is the Greek word from which we get the term bishop. And there are really three terms in the New Testament that speak of this office, and they are used interchangeably. Those three words are overseer, elder, and pastor. So we see this, sometimes you just see one of the words used, as overseer is used here. But there are a couple of places where we see them used very clearly to indicate they're interchangeable. So 1 Peter 5, 1-4, to 4, 
is one such place. Acts 20 is another, but here's what 1 Peter 5 verse 1 says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, that's pastor, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. That's the verbal form of this word, overseer. And so these are three words used often, uh, well, used throughout the New Testament interchangeably to refer to this same office, this office of elder or pastor or overseer. So that's one reason we, we don't make a hard distinction amongst our own elders here. You'll hear elders refer to other elders as pastor, Rod, or there's three Kevins, uh, Harley. Uh, we'll get, sometimes it's elder, sometimes it's pastor, because there really isn't a distinction. The word deacon is used in different ways throughout the New Testament. And so some people debate whether this is even an official office in the church. But I think this is one of the places where it would indicate that it is. And so Paul has kind of three groups, you might say, in, in mind here as he's writing the church. You've got all the saints in Philippi, I guess it's kind of one group, but including the overseers and deacons. The word deacon means simply to serve at the behest of another. And so in one sense, every Christian, every slave of Christ is a deacon in one sense. Uh, this word is used of a number of different people, Jesus himself. It's used of him. It's used of Paul. But in 1 Timothy 3, we see most clearly that there is an office of deacon. There, Paul lays out, after the qualifications of elders, he lays out the qualifications of the office of deacon, which exists as a role of service to the church. It is distinct from the office of oversight, which belongs to the elders. And so Paul is addressing here the Christians in Philippi who are organized in the local church. In fact, this was the first local church in Europe. Just an interesting consideration that we know of. This is Paul's first trip into Europe. True gospel fellowship involves the local church. It is certainly true that all who are in the fellowship of the Son are spiritually united to Christ and one another. That's true gospel fellowship for sure. But that, what is sometimes called mystical union, is lived out in local churches. It is not uncommon to find people dismissive of local churches, to find people dismissive of organized churches. Phrases like, all you need is to belong to Christ and you're good to go. You don't need all that other stuff. Some people think that the early church was just super loose with none of this kind of thing. I think this reveals that's not the case. 
Even just this week, I saw someone, uh, a number of people, kind of advocating this very thing. Of course, we know the thief on the cross never had time to join a local church, to become a member somewhere. So obviously, joining a local church is not necessary for one to be saved in that way. But the New Testament norm is that a person is saved, forgiven of their sin, united to Christ spiritually. They are baptized, reflecting that union with Christ. And then they join the local fellowship of believers, where they live out the one another's, we find in Scripture, exercising their spiritual gifts and in edifying the saints and receiving the, spirit, the, the upbuilding from the other saints in the church, where they are in submission to overseers and so on. We see Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 23, for example, going around and appointing elders. We see this in a number of places. He's appointing elders as they, it's said just kind of in passing often, could be missed. You think of the book of Titus. Titus was left behind in Crete to put things in order by appointing elders in the different towns and the churches there. And so as Paul went about his missionary work, he's not just kind of out there doing whatever. He partnered with churches to go and preach the gospel and plant new churches as the gospel bore fruit, the fruit of repentance and faith. And so Philippi was both a church plant of Paul's and then became a partner with Paul in the gospel in planting other churches. If you look down at verse 4, it says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What Paul is saying is, from the first day I came to you and preached the gospel, how they have joined him in partnership in that gospel and in supporting him as he was in prison sometime later. True gospel fellowship involves the local church. There are many different types of parachurch ministries out there. That's, that's a ministry that is supposed to come alongside of para, parallel the church. The very best of those understand themselves to be serving and helping local churches. So there are, are many schools who understand themselves to be a service to churches. There are publishers that view themselves in much the same way. But there are also, of course, many very bad parachurch ministries that perhaps didn't set out to do this, but in many ways usurp the role of the local church or perhaps even hinder the work of churches. I, re I remember when I first wanted to go into ministry, talking to a, a, a man who was a pastor, and I was going in to work with a parachurch ministry in all likelihood, and he said to me, oh, that's good. He says, that's way better. You'll be more free there than in the church. So the church gets in the way a lot of the time. And at the time, at the time I thought, oh, okay, great. But as it turns out, that was very terrible advice. 
that man has since left the faith even. God's plan is the church. The fellowship, the partnership that Paul had with Philippi was not just a friendship. It was a friendship. But it was a partnership in the gospel. Made up of believers in Christ, united to Christ, serving together, working together for the advance of the gospel and the establishment of more churches. This is one reason as we consider missionaries to support. We look for men like Tim Killalay. As he is in Peru, serving and working with others, with this view of ministry in mind. Working to plant churches, to strengthen local churches. To go into the jungles of Peru, to preach Christ, and to form local churches. The importance of the local church is, of course, why we're working on church plants. In Regina and in Kisbe. And also in recognition of the importance of local churches. We've had others reach out to us. We've had people reach out to us for help and for support in planting churches. And even if I may embarrass them for a moment, maybe, uh, but even we've had men come to us, Kevin, St. John, Rod, Floyd, who sought out our church to help in these matters not out of pretense or presumption about church plants, but with hopes and prayers of church plants, recognizing the need for gospel partnership, fellowship in the forming of local churches, not wanting to strike out on their own. This is very healthy and right. Likewise, we mentioned a meeting coming up on the 29th, to discuss further things in Kisby. We have a partnership of sorts with a church in Lethbridge who have sent out here Peter and Zoe to be part of this, sending Peter with their blessing, recognizing his qualifications. And we want to talk more about that uh, on Wednesday. And But this is a partner of sorts, churches of like mind seeking to work together. Another church in Alberta has agreed to purchase hymnals for this church in Kisby, or in Kisby as well. This is good gospel partnership and fellowship. And the church is key to this. The third thing, the third lesson. True gospel fellowship involves yearning for the good of brothers and sisters. There's a tendency, just generally speaking, uh, it, with regard to friendships and so on, um, to, to maybe use people. Um, we, we, we associate with those who are easiest to associate with, who maybe make us feel good. 
there's nothing wrong with having close friends that we just happen to have everything in common with. But there's much more to it than that when it comes to the church, when it comes to gospel fellowship. In verse 2, we have Paul's greeting. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's really no verb here, but it is most likely that this is reflecting Paul's prayer and wish for them that grace and peace would be multiplied to them. That he desires grace and peace to abound in them, within their hearts, within their corporate midst. 1 Peter 1-2 says this very explicitly in Peter's greeting there. He says, may grace, grace, not grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I think that's Paul's desire here. It's a greeting that is also really a blessing of sorts and a desire. Throughout this letter, Paul expresses this desire for the good of the Philippians. Even as he rejoices in them and thanks them for their gift to him, sending Epaphroditus to present whatever it was he brought to Paul as a gift to help him in his imprisonment, he says that ultimately, he says, it's not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to your credit. That's chapter 4, verse 17. He was happier that they were evidencing fruit. That this would be a blessing to them as they sacrificially gave and sent one of their men to go bring this gift to him. More joyful at their fruitfulness than in receiving the gift that he had need of. Their gift was a sign of fruit and health in them, which made him more glad than the actual tangible gift. And this is all related, really, to that first point about humility. And we will see this throughout Paul's longing for the good of the Philippians. It leads him to encourage them. It also leads him to offer some correction and some warning to them as well. All of this is part of desiring the good and seeking the good of brothers and sisters with whom you are in gospel fellowship with. And so in whatever ways you are able, with whatever gifts you have, seek the ultimate good of your brothers and sisters. Church fellowship is certainly for your own good as an individual, but your brothers and sisters aren't there simply for your own good. Let us be sure we do not use other people for what they can do for us. Let us seek to serve others, praying for God's gracious aid to work humility in our souls. And so as we make our way here through the book of Philippians, may God increase the bond of our unity within our own gospel fellowship and in our partnership with brothers and sisters of like mind in other churches around us. And as we think about and prepare to send out our Regina folks, may God grant us ongoing fellowship, partnership, partnership, 
in the gospel, even as we become two churches. And then beyond that, even as we become three churches, as Kisby plants as well. So may the Lord be gracious and merciful in these things. And may He make His name abound. That many more might yet join in this gospel fellowship. And as we think about just difficult days and as we walk through difficult days and weeks, often it seems so much happens within the span of a couple of days in our world right now. And as much as disconcerting, to also rejoice and praise God that we have a fellowship, that we have one another here, ultimately, For those in Christ, we have Christ. We have eternal life. That even Paul writes this letter, you wouldn't even know he's in jail as he is still able to rejoice. So we indeed have many things to still be grateful for, to still praise God for. He is sovereign in this moment, is he not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have no goodness in ourselves that you should be kind to us. And yet you have called us out of darkness into your glorious light, into the kingdom of your Son, that you might be glorified. Father, I'm thankful for many, many evidences of grace in our midst for the kindness that my brothers and sisters have shown to me and to one another. Father, I pray that you would indeed work in us humility, further humility even, that we would learn, continue to learn to put others ahead of ourselves, that we would be content and rejoice in being slaves of Christ. Father, we thank you so much for this fellowship. We pray that you would add to our number here. And as we launch out into Regina and Kisby, would you add to the numbers there? Father, I pray that you would use us such as we are, weak, frail, struggling with sin, many worries, to yet draw others to yourself. Obviously not because we are clever, but I pray that it would be a clear demonstration of your power and your grace. Father, we continue to ask you to have mercy upon us and upon our neighbors. Pray that you would bless the rest of our fellowship together today. In Jesus' name, amen.